Sydney Youth Orchestras acknowledge the Gadigal, Wangal and Baramadigal people of the Darug and Eora Nations, the traditional custodians of the land on which we perform and rehearse, and their connections to land, water and community. We, the young musicians of SYO, come together from the lands of many nations and peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present. The original storytellers of these lands where we learn and create music today. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and honour the continuation of the oldest music practice in the world. If you could hear the orchestra of the future, what would it sound like? We see the world around us, but we very much hear the world around us. Welcome to Tempo. Proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. It was my whole social life as well, you know, with SYO on the weekends as I was a teenager and everything. Tempo speaks with some of the biggest names in orchestral music and explores their journey from youth orchestra to world stage. The violin was just the vehicle to get the music out there because people are impacted by that. And it features questions from us. With your host and renowned Australian conductor and SYO alumni, Matthew Curry. Hello, I'm Matthew Curry and you're listening to Tempo. My guest today is the extraordinary Stanley Dodds. Stan is a violinist and a conductor who is born in Canada to Chinese and Australian parents. He grew up in Adelaide and studied violin in Austria and Switzerland before winning a position in the Carrier Academy. And from there, he landed a job in the Great Berlin Philharmonic. In addition to his regular day job playing violin, Stan has taken on various managerial positions with his orchestra and developed a secret career as a conductor, which saw him recently nominated as Conductor of the Year by Germany's Opus Classic Awards. Stan, thanks for joining us, and let me start at the very beginning and ask you what your earliest musical memory is. Thanks, Matt. Look, it's really wonderful to be here with you. We've had many a chat over the years, and I'm really happy to take the time now and uh, and share a few things with you. The question, first musical memory, actually, it's a very distinct one. I was about five years old, I think, and I'd been learning violin for maybe half a year or something, and it was my first performance. I remember going up onto the stage, it was in the church, and I think I was playing La Saint-Containe, which is one of those pieces that any young violinist will know. And I remember walking up on the stage and putting the violin up and then thinking, wait a minute, something's wrong. And put it up with the violin in the right hand and the bow in the left hand. <laughs> Instead of like taking it, I tried to change the violin and the bow over while they were still up on my shoulder. And it was quite a difficult logistic task. And I can remember that much more clearly than I actually remember playing it was this, wait a minute, something's not right. <laughs> I think you've touched on something there. Half the musicians I speak to remember vividly the disasters that happen on stage, whether they were five or 55, because it still happens from time to time. I love that. Please tell me there's video footage. <laughs> uh, back in 1975, I think that would have been a very big camera. Oh, what a, <laughs> what a shame. I so want to see that. You started quite young. Was your family a musical family? Both my parents loved music, but they weren't musicians themselves. They were both mathematicians. My father had had a fascination with music. He grew up in Armadale. It was a very large family, and I think sport played the principal role in his life outside school and academic work. When he was then at university, I think he was introduced for the first time, at least as he remembers it, to classical music, hearing Beethoven Violin Concerto for the first time. I think this developed for him into a continued fascination when he went to the States to continue his studies. I think he had roommates who were also into classical music and he found himself listening to it a lot. And I think at some point he bought himself a recorder and a how-to book and, and, and taught himself to play the recorder more or less just to, as an autodidact. What percentage of recorder players 
chose to play the recorder by <laughs> themselves. He must be the 0.01%. Yeah, at least I think he picked the one that was where it's probably possible because remember back there, there was no YouTube videos. I mean, you really had to read the book and somehow, you know, the whole audio, the, the whole hearing part of it, you just had to figure out. Anyway, that was his story. That And my mother, I believe, well, she grew up in Taiwan principally and also then met my father when they were both studying in the States. And I believe she did learn piano at some level. So there was a little bit of more formal musical training, but I still think only at a very, very low level that academic studies were definitely the priority for her growing up. So when they started a family, the, uh, as you mentioned before, I was born in Canada. I stayed there for all of a few weeks, I think. It was a one-year stay that the young parents had in Canada. And then they moved to Adelaide where there was a new university being set up. It was uh, Flinders University and my father had an offer to be a, a lecturer there. So he decided Adelaide sounded like a good place. And so the family of three moved back there. And, and subsequently, I got a number of siblings. I have one brother and three sisters and they're all born fairly evenly spaced one-year period. So it was a very busy young household. As my parents liked to uh, tell the story, they said, that, so there were all these lively kids running around and they wanted to give them something constructive to do. And there was a friend of the family that knew a violin teacher in Brighton, which was about you know, 10 minutes by car where I grew up in near the Flinders University. They thought that'd be a good idea to give the young boys something to do. So they took us along to Alita Larsen's. She was of Latvian descent and had been living in Australia, I think, for some 20 years already. And she did a few of her little tests. She used to take prospective students and sit them in front of the piano and just play notes at them, see if they could sing it back. That's all. Just to see if you could even get near the pitch that was played at you. So I did a sort of little oral test. And so we seemed to pass that. And we started music lessons, actually, because she taught very much piano parallel to violin initially and would place a lot of emphasis on oral training. But I think as kids... And I speak at least for myself. I had fun. I enjoyed doing it. I liked the feeling of playing violin and it was sort of challenging on all the different levels. And I guess I had a, a bit of a talent for it. I didn't find it impossibly difficult. We persevered with it. And as it turned out, of the five children, four of us are now professional musicians in various orchestras or in a teaching capacity. That musical household really stayed with us all. I think the answer is yes, then. It's not so extraordinary to have a family of musicians, but normally it comes from the parents already being musicians that you have this. But for four out of five kids, 80% of you to have a career in music, that's extraordinary. And you're all the oldest, right? So I guess you were the trailblazer. Yes, I was. At what point did you think, oh, I will do this, I'll do this forever? When it's something that you grow up with, I didn't tend to actually question it so much, a bit like you don't question taking a shower every night. Well, actually, you do, don't you, when you're a kid, but you know, brushing your teeth and all the other things. It was just part of the daily rhythm and a bit of practice before school, go off to school, come home, have dinner, do a bit of practice, do a bit of homework. It all just went along its own way and, and we didn't really question it. There were lessons on Sundays, on Saturdays, we'd go and do some ensemble practice with all the other violinists. It was a violin studio, uh, specifically. I did spend one year in Europe when it says about year 10, I was 15, my parents took a sabbatical and went to Linz in Austria for one year. And during that year, I was put in a special music high school called a music gymnasium. So that sort of dosed the school hours so that they wouldn't go past about midday. And then in the afternoon, you're expected to go to the conservatorium and you know have your lessons and do stuff at the conservatorium. So it was a very specialized music school. Until then, 
in Australia, I'd gone to normal primary school and I, I went to Adelaide High, which was a specialist language school, if anything, but not necessarily a music special school like they do exist in Adelaide. And so this is the first time I was in a school environment where music was central to what everybody identified with. And this was, for me, a real eye-opener because music had always been something I did, but had done privately and I'd done it at home. And actually, I'd kept a bit hidden. <laughs> it was a real eye-opener for me because for the first time now in my life, the music component of my life was brought up front and center. For example, it started with us being introduced to the school at an assembly on the first week we were there. This was my brother and I both went there. Daniel's my brother. They put us in front of the assembly and said, okay, play something for us. So we've got an idea who you are. And my brother and I had a good old party trick we used to play all the time was uh, Navarra by Sarasate. You know, it's one of these virtuoso violin duets where you go all over the violin. And as I said, we'd done it many times before, so we didn't think too much of it. And what we didn't expect was the reaction we got afterwards. On the basis of that, we sort of became like school heroes. They thought that was extremely cool what we could do, whereas we were just doing what we usually did. So it was unusual to get that type of recognition for the music side of things. And it developed from there because life at the school centered around music. I mean, you might say it was a bit nerdy, but you know, there were kids in the class who were fans of Bruckner symphonies. I mean, this was Linz in Upper Austria and Bruckner didn't live so far away. So That was mid-15, I'm going to say. <laughs> so when you have a guy in your class who's a horn player and he comes from Mühlviertel, which is sort of like the real country area north of Linz, and he speaks in a really heavy dialect, but he raves about the corners of the Bruckner symphonies. It, it leaves, I must admit, for a long time, I still didn't actually hear a Bruckner symphony, but I can remember the way these guys related to the music. And so there were all sorts of impressions that left lingering memories that maybe at later stages I would draw upon. But generally, the fact that I was in a class of music crazy people and what I was able to do as a violinist and maybe perhaps even what I was able to do as a musician received that type of social recognition and entailed a certain status. I was very unaccustomed to that because until that point, music had been something I'd kept quite private. It was more sort of a closet existence and suddenly it came out in the open. Is that because in Australia it's considered uncool? I think, it, to be honest, in most places in your teenage years, being a classical musician is considered uncool to a lot of people, especially to the musicians. I led myself to believe that. I mean, in the end, that was what I thought. It may not have been the case. Case, but I just decided that was something that I did on the side and on the weekends. That was my separate existence. And I was somebody else, perhaps at the school. I wasn't uncomfortable with who I was. What I did think when I was 13 or 14, and they were offering some instrumental instruction actually at the school, I decided that rather than violin, it might be a little more beneficial for my attractiveness to play percussion because I always thought those guys playing the drums up the back of the band, they've always got all this equipment and it's so impressive. And they said, up there. So I actually started studying percussion at school and actually had percussion lessons for one and a half years at Adelaide High. You end up as an orchestral musician. When did you first play in an orchestra? I didn't actually get the opportunity to play with youth orchestras when I was growing up. So I mentioned I went to Austria when I was 15. Until that time, my only orchestral experience was at Easter, where very nice man called um, Fairhurst, who used to be our AMEB examiner, used to invite us, and we were still small kids at the time, to play with an orchestra he put together to do the Passion, the St. Matthew's Passion, usually at Easter in the town hall. So this was like six or seven weeks prior to Easter, every Saturday afternoon, going through and reading through these Bach 
arias and movements and dear old Fairhurst out the front always yelling out, oh, Bach, he's really difficult with all those accidentals. And this was my first ever orchestral experience and the, just the spectacle of a passion when it came to the performance in the town hall. I can remember that also very, very vividly because we'd been involved in one component of it for so long, just rehearsing the orchestral part and then putting it all together and then the entire almost theatrical side of the passion with the story and the narrator and the arias and the choir. It was a great thing to be part of. And that was, a, that was my experience as a kid with orchestras, but it didn't go beyond that. We did play in an ensemble with only violins. So this is the studio that Alita Larson's led in Adelaide it was called the Silver Strings Studio. And she had an ensemble consisting only of violins. So we would play with 10, 12 violins together with piano usually two-part arrangements of anything from popular tunes, from sound of music to more serious music. But we would always learn this stuff by heart. So the ensemble would play by heart and we would give two concerts a year, usually in Edmund Wright House, which was the ceremonial-looking building in the centre of Adelaide uh, that was used for wedding ceremonies. So lots of red carpet and gold decorations. And that always also felt like an important moment in the year too. So that was it. So when I went to Austria, I was very inexperienced in orchestra and the school itself had an orchestra. The first thing was every Friday, there'd be an orchestral rehearsal. And I think I can even remember the first program we played was with Egmont Overture and uh, Unfinished Symphony. And this was a school orchestra that only just a few years before had risen to, let's say, some considerable fame under Franz Welsemust because Franz Welsemust had just attended this school and only a couple of years prior had graduated and gone on to, I believe, his first job with the London Symphony Orchestra as a very young shooting star conductor. So there was still a lot of buzz in the school about the potential of the orchestra. And you could sense that orchestra was something very promising. And they identified with it, maybe like some colleges might identify with their football team. It was a, a significant thing, the orchestra. And those were my first orchestra experiences with the school orchestra. And then also at the Bruckner Conservatorium in Linz, same thing. There was a conservatorium orchestra. And one of the first things we did there was uh, Sacre du Printemps and uh, Carmina Burana. I mean, you can imagine I was 15, wow. 16 and doing all this stuff for literally the first time. I don't think I'd ever rips, uh, encountered a 516 bar before I sat down to this stuff. <laughs> no one has, and only really since. That's fantastic. What were the steps that got you from high school in Linz to being in the Von Karajan Academy? Well, it went back to Australia first. So I was in Austria only for one school year in Austria, which goes from September to July as opposed to the Australian school years, which uh, happened in a calendar year. So in mid-year 1986, I was 16, the family returned to Adelaide as planned. I finished year 11 and did then my matric year, year 12 at Adelaide High. Didn't have music as a subject. It was my intention when I went back to Australia that I would return to study in Europe somewhere after the experiences I'd had. And at the end of the year in Austria, I had, I'd say, two main route options. One of them would have been to go to Vienna, as most people in Austria tended to do if they had ambition. You would go to Vienna or you might go to Salzburg. They were the two sort of like major destinations in Austria, where, whereby Vienna certainly had the more international reputation, I think, or, or the broader appeal. The other option was to go to Switzerland. And this was a more family connection. It had to do with the fact that the son of the violin teacher in Adelaide, Alita Larsens, he's Gunnar's Larsens, he was a violin professor at the conservatorium in Lucerne. 
in Switzerland, a small conservatorium in a very picturesque Swiss town on the lake in, near the mountains. And during the year in Austria, we made a couple of trips to Lucerne, had lessons with him, and we'd gotten on very well with him. And, and so when we weighed up the options, we decided that we would go back to Switzerland rather than take the Vienna option. Now, at the time, it was it seemed like a decision of convenience because we just knew somebody already, whereas Vienna was we would still have to organize all those connections. But as it turned out, I think it was a very fateful decision because if we'd taken the path to Vienna, we would have stayed in Vienna because Vienna is such a rich environment that those who go there and study will invariably, I think, remain in that general area. I don't know what my options and career opportunities would have been in Vienna. I mean, whether I would have ended up in the Vienna field, question mark. I don't know. The path that I ended up taking via Lucerne, I, I went to Lucerne and did, back then there weren't bachelors. So I did what was a teaching diploma and then I did a performance diploma. I was there for five and a half years. And after five and a half years, I thought I need to go somewhere else. I need to go to a bigger place because for all of its beauty and convenience and even the opportunities that I had there, I was a bigger fish in a very, very small pond in Lucerne. And it was became clear to me I had to look for something abroad. And most specifically, and coming from Lucerne, then I, you tend to look more north towards Germany rather than east towards Vienna. It's strange how sort of forks at that point. And Germany comes across then as the very cosmopolitan country, certainly decentralized with many, many options to go and study because it's not just like Vienna and Salzburg. In Germany, you've got Berlin, Freiburg, Cologne, Munich, uh, Hamburg, you name it, there are music high schools in these places, Lübeck, everywhere, so many teachers, so many classes, so many options. And I began looking around there and it was actually thanks to another Australian, Sally Clark, who's a childhood friend of my wife, Rowena, who comes from Brisbane, Sally Clark, the viola. As I was looking, this would have been about 1993, she was currently herself a scholar at the Carrion Academy. So she invited us to Berlin one end of year. So Sylvester, we called 31st of December, we called Sylvester. We hung out with her for about 24 hours. And in the course of that 24 hours, we went to the end of year concert of the Berlin Phil, which was being conducted by Rostropovich and Spivakov was playing solo and Rostropovich played something himself. Then we went on to a party hosted by one of the members of the orchestra. Then we went to a student party in a different part of Berlin. And then from the student party, we went on to a third party with very colorful crowd. And this, <laughs> that evening Berlin left quite an impression on me because I'd had, I would say until then, quite a cloistered existence. I mean, Lucerne also was very quiet. Suddenly just exposure to a place like Berlin and on a night like that. I didn't forget that. But what I also particularly didn't forget was how attractive the Curryon Academy seemed to be as a prospective place to continue my studies. I mean, amongst other things, you know, a question every student asks themselves is, you know, how am I going to fund it? Curryon Academy offered a scholarship, which would pay for your basic living costs. And then most attractively, it promised an hour and a half of individual instruction with a concert master and two hours of chamber music instruction per week engagements with the Berlin Phil as a substitute. And the, the sum of all that just sounded incredible. I went and auditioned, uh, that would have been May 93. I was 23 years old and I got one of the positions in the Karen Academy. And that was then the move to Berlin the, the, the following September. And I've been here ever since. We're talking 30 years I've been in Berlin now. It's shocking, actually. The festival strings Lucerne. And of course, 
you still have a connection there in as much as your brother, I think, is the music director. Is that is that right? That's correct. When I was a student playing with Festival Strings Lucerne, there was still a conductor out in front of the 13 musicians. It was the founder, Rudolf Baumgartner. He was himself a violinist. God bless him. He was a, a wonderful manager and we had wonderful experiences with him. And I, I did learn a lot from him, but he did leave me with the impression that conducting is not a serious profession. That stayed with me for a little while, I must say. And anyway, so to fast forward to the present time, my brother Daniel has been artistic director of the ensemble now for, I believe, 10 years. They did away with the conductor. They, they, I mean, the core ensemble was 13 players. And he now leads the ensemble from the first chair. I mean, similarly to the way Richard does ACO, for example. And they've also expanded their repertoire to go well beyond the original 13 players. They'll typically play even with up 20, 25 players and they'll do Beethoven symphonies. And he's still leading that all from the first chair. And they've enjoyed a huge profile boost, actually, since they changed that format. And uh, they're quite sought after as also as a partner for very significant soloists because they enjoy that work, very direct work with a play conductor. Yeah, that's a very special role. We might get to that later because there's two of us are, are conductors and we see the profession with certain eyes. And we also know that orchestral musicians see the profession quite differently. One thing I'd like to point out to our listeners, if they're not aware, they may have had the delight of seeing you and your brother on the front desk of the Australian World Orchestra, which was a, just a delight to see. I think it pleased a lot of people. Carrion Academy, that was the first of that sort of academy to exist. Am I right in thinking that that sort of training bubble was really created by Carrion himself for the Berlin Phil? It was, and I think it was 1974 where Carrion was – he expressed some concern at the quality of the applicants for the vacancies in the Berlin Phil. And he had the idea, well, look, why don't we set up our own training academy and one of the really great things about Karyan was he had fantastic connections to the business community. And it was those connections that enabled him to establish the Easter Festival in Salzburg, but it was also those connections that enabled him to establish the Orchestra Academy, as it's known. And it was a very exclusive club of donors that he gathered around him. It was actually also very much a social privilege to be part of the donor circle for the Karyan Academy. Or as it was known, there was Orchestra Academy of the Berlin Philharmonic. Anyway, that began in 1974 and very modestly, I think, five or six positions. It's since grown. We're now probably 50, 60 years on. It's now encompasses, I think, over 30 positions. But when we look at the fact that in recent auditions for vacancies in the Berlin Phil, particularly in the strings, that the final rounds of the auditions are almost exclusively populated by former or present members of the Curian Academy, you'd have to say that it's very much fulfilled its function. And whilst it might, I guess you might say, oh, but that seems very incestuous, I, I would just point out that the nature of the Curian Academy is it is itself already a very high pre-selection level, that those who get into the Curian Academy have already in some ways passed a very high audition hurdle. The fact that they are then, after a certain number of years' experience, experience with the orchestra in the academy that they also have good chances at the auditions. It's certainly not a guarantee for a job, not by a long way, but the level is there. I guess you get a real genuine understanding of the culture of the orchestra. You're spending a couple of years really getting to know the orchestra sort of from a safe distance before you're dropped into it. Let me get to when you were first dropped into it, because actually you would have done your first, as you said, as a well, as a guest from the Karyan Academy 
into the auction. So that must have been quite an experience. What, do you remember what your first Berlin Phil gig was? I was dropped into it already in the Carrion Academy. I mean, one of the first things I did was I got a week assigned. It was with Claudio Bardo, and we played Death and Transfiguration, Pictures and Exhibition, and I can't remember what the third work was, but it was also a recording for Deutsche Grammophon, and it was all stuff I'd never played before. I can honestly say I was completely freaked out by it all. My teacher was very good. It was Rainer Zonner. He was a concert master. He took the preparation super seriously with me. I realized how unforgiving and how exacting what was expected of me. I mean, he made it clear and sort of trained me up for it. But nevertheless, there were too many things happening on the stage with Abado out the front and the orchestra around me that I did not understand what was going on. I mean, an orchestra is a very large apparatus and there are many, many forces at work that when you look at it from a distance, you have no idea that they're there, but you sit in the middle of it and it suddenly just seems so complicated. And I, for the life of me, I could not understand how what Abado was doing related to what was then played. I didn't understand the delay behind the beat. I didn't understand what he was doing. It just made no sense to me. And I just found the whole thing really scary. And then I was immediately assigned to the next week. It was a Rachmaninoff symphony. I think it was the third one with Kurt Sandling. And I only got 24 hours notice for that and picked up the part. Never seen a Rachmaninoff symphony in my life. Looked at the 30 pages and thought, oh my God, I can't do this. And I stayed up all night and practiced it. But at the end of that second week, and I'd sat next to the same guy. My, my teacher had been so kind as to actually assign me to somebody who, who he knew would look after me a little bit in those first two weeks. And at the end of the second week, the guy turned around to me and said, I really enjoyed playing with you. And I had also felt a bit better that second week. And those words meant so much to me. And they gave me so much trust that, you know, maybe I can do this because I can tell you the first two weeks were mostly just massive doubt that, that I was able to do this. I felt out of my depth. I felt lost. I felt anxious. <laughs> All of that. At the end of the two weeks, I felt, ah, oh, maybe I have got what it takes. And I would say that I then embarked on probably the most serious phase of my study was once I actually was already in the Carrion Academy. I then really realized why I had to, what I was practicing for and where the deficiencies were. And it was also the beginning of a deep, love and fascination for orchestral repertoire. I didn't know it at the time. And all of those, that whole mystery of what I was experiencing would stay with me for many years until I got my first opportunity to conduct myself, which was about seven years later. And all those questions I'd asked myself, I suddenly put myself on the other side of the equation and realized, oh, this is much harder than I thought. Well, you've touched on something that I find utterly fascinating, that most orchestras play behind the beat. And to varying degrees. But when you get to Berlin Philharmonic, it seems to me, it's not an orchestra I've conducted, but I've seen them many times. It seems to me they are an orchestra that play way behind the beat. What I find sort of weird and wonderful is when you ask orchestral musicians why this is so, no one knows. No one can really give a good answer. Why do we play behind the beat? Why is that the way we play? And I have sort of theories about this, but I'm curious as to why you think that's sort of the playing style with many orchestras or your orchestra, for instance. You can talk about it in relation to your orchestra or your experience as a player versus conductor. I'm curious what you think of that. We could probably fill about four podcasts with this, with this subject. Right. Hour one we go. I've got my own theories about it too. And, and I think, first of all, what you observe is behind the beat isn't just behind the beat. 
And there's either behind the beat or the beat's in front of the orchestra. There's that way around too. Let's not forget it. And then if you look carefully, there are moments where it's behind the beat. So if you give it like a first beat to a big chord, the chord won't come when the stick is at its lowest point. True. But then as the music progresses and you get to, let's say, something which is quick, then you'll suddenly see the stick and, and the orchestra very close together. For me, I mean, in my own explanation of it, there are questions of, I mean, I always look at sound as actually having physical mass. If the mass is at rest and you want to get it moving, there's a huge inertia that's existent. And that inertia means that you don't get three tons to move from zero to 60K in an instant. If you know what I mean, I'm just overdrawing the picture. But that once it's moving, once it's moving, you can predict exactly where it's going to cross each one of those track lines. You know what I mean? So, and I think as a conductor, what you realize with different ensembles, different ensembles have different inertia and they react a little differently, but it has a physical basis actually. But I know it's born of many other phenomena as well. One of them being, for example, an orchestra like the Berlin Phil finds safety in playing with the members. So the Berlin Phil listens a lot. We listen very much to what's going on within the orchestra. Now, the ability for an orchestra to listen to itself is also highly dependent on the hall they're used to playing in. And that's the first thing I want to stress. If an orchestra plays in a hall where they can have a great difficulty hearing it, they will not develop the skill to hear because you can't hear it. So we play in a hall which is very good for hearing yours. So we tend to want to listen. Once you get over the reading of your part, you're listening to what it fits with. So there's a lot of intrinsic staying together in a, in a type of a group. Now, if you as a conductor try and do something outside or that wants to contradict that sense of wanting to play with someone else or what you can hear, you're going to have to know why you're doing that. Because if it doesn't make sense, it will be rejected. And if it's rejected, you'll get that phenomenon of it being behind the beat. As it happens, even in great halls like the Philharmonie, you'll be hearing something, but you'll be hearing it too late. You've got to remember an orchestra sits spread across almost a 30-meter span at the front. If you take the speed of sound at 330 meters a second, you're getting close to one-tenth of a second, which is a sixteenth in tempo 144, roughly. Yeah. Little things like that. So we're dealing with physics, right? Yeah. And so sound has mass. Light doesn't. Conductors work with light. Orchestra works with sound, plus the physicalities of all the instruments. So all I'm doing is just opening all of the little subjects for discussion when talking about this phenomena of being behind the beat or not. It's reduced almost to a ridiculous simplicity when you just say it's behind the beat. But I have seen it cause massive discomfort for various conductors who are not accustomed to it. And I would say that without really having the first-hand experience myself of conducting orchestras in America, all over the world, I am familiar with German orchestras and I know how they work and I feel quite comfortable in front of that type of reaction. I guess I conduct a lot in the Philharmonie too, so I understand the way an orchestra hears in the Philharmonie. But these are all the phenomena that conductors have to adjust to when they travel around and have their different guest orchestras. And each orchestra will react differently to it. Some of it will, will not like it, others will respond well to it. And the same for conductors. I want to get now, because you've done so much, playing violin is a, a big part, but it's one part of your career. And within the orchestra, you've taken on various roles. And I'm quite interested in that. They all sound like quite big roles you've taken on. And I, I wonder why you chose to take on these roles and how you feel about it being in a, I'm not sure if managerial is the, exactly the right word, actually, but your, your responsibilities for the orchestra beyond just playing. So tell me a bit about what, what you've done for the orchestra beyond the violin playing. 
Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that the Burn and Fill has very proud tradition of being self-governed, as well as the personality that the orchestra supposedly has on stage. You know, when you go and go, oh, that's a great concert. I mean, that's the first and the most public manifestation of that. But there is an orchestral spirit behind it that is very much about self-determination. And it goes right back to the orchestra's foundings in 1883, where they were all employees of a guy called Benjamin Bilzer, I think it was his name. And they used to go around and earn a lot of money for the company playing tours, but he used to stick them in fourth class on the train and pay them miserably. And then after a while, they said, that's it. We're not doing this anymore. And they rebelled en masse and all quit their job and said, we're going to form our own orchestra. And that spirit of, you know, we're going to take our fate into our own hands. I'd say that's a really important part of the orchestra's DNA, and that extends even into the artistic side of things as well, I believe. The idea that the orchestra is self-governing, the idea that the orchestra makes its own decisions, chooses its own music director, and up until the Second World War was also its own private company. But at that point, I have to say, a struggling company. They had a really hard time when they formed their own company trying to make ends meet. They played every gig imaginable and things got really difficult for them, particularly towards the end of the 20s and the 30s. And that led in the 30s to them being taken over by the state. They had a big advocate in Goebbels. Uh, there were some major players in the Nazi party who were playing off against each other. They were rivals in the, in the cultural sphere as well. I think, I don't know if it was Goering was a big supporter of the state opera and Goebbels was a big supporter of the Berlin Phil and there was Furtwängler as a conductor. So these are all prestige objects that party elite were also vying over. But the deal that was cut then basically was that the state said, okay, you give up your private company status and we'll make you state employees will give you a general manager called the intendant, which didn't exist until that point. It was just a, an agent. And you've got the safety there in terms of your income. But, you know, your employer is, well, us, as it was, and it was the Nazis back then. But even through that period, the orchestra maintained its democratic structures. So there was still, despite the fact that the paymasters were now the state at that point, there was still a lot of self-determination in terms of the running of the orchestra, still the conductors. I mean, it was Fordwinger at that time. And most importantly then, once the Second World War was over and Germany was looking to rebuild, that self-governing structure was what helped the orchestra reorganize, look for contacts in the caretaker powers that they were, apply to play again, and basically rise once again a little bit from what was, you know, left after so many people who had, you know, either left the country or... And this has continued to this day. I mean, so if I fast forward now until when Simon Rattle came to the orchestra, which was the early 2000s, the orchestra underwent one last transformation from a department of the municipal government of Berlin to a so-called public foundation that had the benefit that we receive public money, but we have a fairly autonomous use of the public money for running not just the orchestra, but the philharmonic as well. So there is a governing body for the orchestra, which is also in charge of the concert halls, the main hall and the chamber music hall. And this governing body that has an executive board that consists of four people. One of them is the chief conductor of the Berlin Phil. The other one is the general manager or the intendant, as I mentioned before. And there are two musicians. 
So just to give you an idea that the governing board of the Berlin Philharmonic and the principal concert halls in Berlin include two musicians gives you some idea of the say that the musicians have managed to establish even in the management area of the orchestra. Now, I was one of those two people for 12 years. I, I gave up that job last year, actually principally just to focus a little bit more on my artistic endeavors. It was a job that I did was a very exciting place to be, as you can imagine, because you're at the forefront of cultural life here in Berlin, for sure. I mean, the Berlin Philharmonic is in Berlin, which is a very cosmopolitan city culturally too, you know, with seven symphony orchestras, but it still is a, a type of beacon institution. And we have one of the best concert halls in the world here. And to be working with Simon Rattle, I enjoy that a lot. He was a wonderful artistic director who took his role as artistic director way beyond just the concerts that he conducted, but really tried to develop the artistic personality of the entire institution. And being on the board with him was, I must say, a real pleasure because he just had so many ideas. It was such a creative force. And as I said, it was a very privileged position to look out onto the, the cultural landscape in Berlin and, and indeed beyond Berlin. But I think a lot of this is born of that sense that you know, as a member of the Berlin Phil, yes, you're a player, but you're also a member of a self-governing collective. And for that to function, the members need to assume responsibilities for the organization and for the running of the organization. So I guess it was just doing what I felt was expected of members of the orchestra. Yeah, well, you really stood up. But obviously, there's something more than that there. I can't imagine a person, even in the Berlin Philharmonic, a person takes on that role for 12 years whilst also pursuing a conducting career separately and just thinks, well, I'm just a responsible orchestral player. It seems like you have a curiosity, an ambition, a drive, an openness to do other things. There's probably a bit of all of those things knowing you as a person. It's probably not one of those things, which I, I find fascinating because actually, you know, you have a, an outstanding conducting career while still playing in a very challenging, demanding position in a top orchestra as well as doing the stuff for the management of the orchestra, the running of the orchestra. So now I want to get to how did you come to have a conducting career on, on top of your fiddling career? <laughs> well, I mentioned to you earlier how some of the first impressions I had of the profession of conducting left me feeling that it was not to be taken seriously. And I did, while I was in Lucerne, the director of the conservatorium did initiate a conducting program, and I enrolled in that. And attended some of the first lessons, didn't actually involve much conducting, as you can imagine. It was still just more th some theoretical stuff. I have to admit, I didn't take it very seriously and that the primary focus was my violin playing, if anything. And that then took me away to Berlin. And then when I got in the Carrion Academy, I really had to just focus on my violin playing for the time being because I, I, I felt quite deficient on many levels. The other side was also just the repertoire, just constantly being confronted with stuff that everyone else seemed to know backwards and I'd never heard before. These were great years. They were Bardo years. And I mean, certainly whilst I initially felt I didn't understand what he was doing at all, I did become accustomed to his conducting and realized actually while he was there how lucky I was to be doing a lot of this repertoire for the first time with him. You know, my first Beethoven cycle with him, my first Brahms symphonies with him, the entire Mahler symphonies with him. I realized that that's pretty lucky to get that as your mother's milk with this repertoire. It's a good place to start. I gave it a I was thinking often about why does he do this? How does it actually work? And what's this relationship? The actual first opportunity that I got was thanks to Brett Dean. I think it was 2001 and Brett asked me to come out to um, music camp, which he was director of. 
And he asked me to take charge of the Llewellyn String Orchestra. And we put together a program and I, I made an arrangement of a Janacek String Quartet, which I think many people have done, and for string orchestra. And we, we, we had some interesting stuff on there, Apollon Mizajet, but also Bieber, Battaglia. And it was a real, real, you know, because it's two weeks worth of music. So I got all the repertoire ready. We were at the opening night. The music camp was going to start the next day. And I was asking Brett, yeah, who's the concert master? Because my assumption was that I would work with the string orchestra, but they would do a, you know, they play without conductor. And Brett said, oh, no, 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 you, you're going to have to conduct them. And I, I had given no thought to it whatsoever. So the next day I found myself in front of the string orchestra and we got stuck into the Anacek and I just did whatever came to me in the moment. and. Well, to cut the story short, I had the time of my life those two weeks. I mean, it was a, it was absolutely amazing, and it was, it was the whole thing. It was the work with the young musicians. It was the conducting and trying to make a difference without you know without playing, but trying to make oneself understood and the relationship between whatever movement you were doing out the front and perhaps it having an effect or not. I don't know. And anyway, so at the end of the two weeks, Brett said to me, "Look." You've got talent in that area. You should really take it seriously and and do something about it. So he it was very much Brett who encouraged me, and I took that back to me uh, back to Berlin with me. And I had a colleague in the orchestra, a couple of colleagues actually, that at the time were in charge of two amateur orchestras here in Berlin. Good amateur orchestras, you know, they play a concert twice a year in the ma- major venues here in Berlin. As it was, one of them was looking for a conductor, and so I went and did a trial rehearsal there and. They liked it, so I had an orchestra I could stand in front of every week, which, as we all know, is 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 you know it's you can learn as much theory as you want, but this is also very much a learning by doing job. And before too long, I actually even had a second orchestra, so I had two amateur orchestras here in Berlin where I was able to do big repertoire and uh, and just get podium time. And at the same time, I sought out Yorma Panola, who was very much, let's say, the conducting guru at the time that everybody seemed to want to have lessons with, and I did three or four courses with him with various orchestras in Berlin, in um, Lausanne, in Milan. And this involved practical time in front of the orchestra with his sort of standard set of repertoire pieces, which would be a Mozart symphony, uh, Debussy, uh, La Primédie d'Enfant, it would be Dumbarton, Oaks, Stravinsky. These were, he had these pieces he always did at his courses, and um, you got to know those really like every, like the back of your hand. And what I learned from him was enough to keep me going with all of the stuff that I had to do to keep teaching myself. Because you start off conducting, and you look at yourself on a video, and you go, oh, well, it felt great. And you look at it, and you go, mm, something doesn't look quite right and I don't know what it is. Well, what Panala was able to do is he was able to actually point out more specifically some of what was not actually going quite right or what was unnecessary or timing things, whatever. He taught me to watch myself and maybe more importantly, to watch conductors and what does a conductor actually do and what's effective and what's not effective, what's just smoke and mirrors and what is actually, what's going to be dependable, you know, stuff like that. And look, it's the, that was just the beginning. That was the beginning of what's now become an ever more increasing preoccupation with the role. You know, I've been doing it for 20 years now. I've got a very large repertoire that I've performed, but, you know, the more I do it, I guess also the higher your standards get, the 
bigger the job gets. It's not that it gets smaller. It gets, in some ways, it gets bigger because you learn, you know, I'm now watching our, our current chief conductor, Kirill Petrenko, and I'm seeing other stuff I didn't know was possible. And it's like the horizon just keeps getting bigger and bigger and I keep getting smaller and smaller, but you just get hungrier and hungrier to keep chasing the rabbit. <laughs> it's beautifully put. I know, of course, you've you've conducted the Sydney Youth Orchestra quite recently and you've had various successes around the world, Australian World Orchestra. You have a, an ongoing series in Berlin, don't you? That's your sort of bread and butter at the Philharmonie. What's your next big thing for you? Do you have a, a big project or a new piece that's coming up or what would be your next big challenge, would you say? Let's say my existence as a conductor is, the foundation of it is uh, the tenure I have as a chief conductor of the Symphony Orchestra Berlin, as it's known. It's an orchestra that's been playing a concert series in the Philharmonie since it was built, actually before the Philharmonie was built, so over 60 years. It plays exclusively in the Philharmonie. It has a very loyal subscriber base. Prior to the pandemic, I was doing 10 concerts, 10 programs a year with them. After the pandemic, we've cut the number of concerts down a little bit because, amongst other things, it's an entirely privately funded orchestra, there is no public money. So it's absolutely essential that we sell out the whole at every concert. What we've done is cut the number of concerts down a little bit, but to ensure that they're all always sold out. And they still are. It survived the pandemic. I'm very proud of that. I have a very varied year program. It, um, there are three gala concerts, which will have many different components, including a symphony. But there are also concerts, for example, I do a concert which only has string concertos or a concert which only has wind concertos. And surprisingly, these formats are really popular with the audience. You know, I invite a lot of my colleagues from the Berlin field to perform as soloists and I'm always just myself so impressed at the level of my own colleagues in the orchestra. They get up and play a solo concerto and you think, oh, you know, they, they could be cruising around doing only this, but they, you know, they're my tutti colleague here. I feel very proud in those moments to, to be able to present them as soloists. I do a ninth of Beethoven every 1st of January as a New Year's concert in the Philharmonie and one, a concert I enjoy very much and it's something I'd actually like to do more in its original form, but I put on an operetta gala during the Christmas break, which you know the type of program, all the favourite arias and and, and, and songs and, uh, and then some ballet numbers and you've got 22 items on the program and a pile of scores which reaches to the roof and uh, you've got to pull out the three pages and... I love music theatre, I love opera, I love working with singers, and um, so I, I treasure that concert very much too. But that's the foundation of my existence. I know those concerts you just mentioned. I should share with you, the last time I did one was with the wonderful Eleanor Lyons as a, an Aussie soprano singer with the Vienna State Opera. One of the things, we did a, an operetta from Kalman, we did two excerpts from it, and when I arranged my scores on stage, I suddenly got to that point midway in the second half where the Ron Kalman was there and the first half scores had gone and somehow this one was in its place. So I had to, just before I gave the upbeat to the wrong piece, I, I just sort of thoughtfully thought, this isn't the right piece. And I've done a bunch of those those programs and they're quite terrifying, but never have I thought, oh, actually having the same composer on the same piece, two hours in the wrong place creates this problem. So I actually had to apologize to the audience and say, give me one second, I need to go off stage and find the right score. And that's the problem when you have dozens of scores. Anyway, I interrupted with my, my with my stupid story. I've got an equivalent one for you later, but I'll, I'll tell it in a while. So the foundation of my conducting career is this season with the, with those elements, but then there are the various guest uh, invitations and they will range all, all sorts of different ensembles, symphony orchestras around the world. There'll be some chamber orchestras here and there. 
I did found a contemporary music ensemble with which I did a project uh, in um, Singapore last year. Contemporary music is something I love doing. I love getting a score which has never been performed before and figuring it out and working it out, hearing it for the first time and, and, and uh, you know, just t- doing that journey with a new piece of music. Well, I know you recently had a great success doing some works of Wolfgang Riem, who's one of the great major German composers and an especially difficult composer, I think, to perform. How was that? Well, okay, I guess, first of all, it's an, an intellectual challenge when you sit in front of the scores for these pieces, trying to make head or tail of them. And I realize it's not a music that has a mass appeal, but for those people who take the time to delve into it, it is in its own way very rewarding. And I think the nature of any good music isn't necessarily that you come away at the first hearing going, oh, that was great and I've understood it all. I think very often the really great works you sit there, you might feel a bit puzzled, but you, at the same time, you feel curious. And the question is, does it draw you back? And was there something there that, is there an unanswered question that it leaves you with, whatever it might be, and unformulated as it may be, that sort of leaves you coming back for a second go at it, you know? There's a lot to be said for that experience. And I think if you can encourage that, you know, for people to just, I, I understand, you know, maybe you don't get don't get it, but not getting it sometimes can be exactly that food for coming back to see if you get it. I know exactly what you mean. You, you sort of, I think the greatest experience is going, I don't get that, but I want to know more. You know, I want to work it out. Yeah, exactly. My first experience in contemporary music was that was when I heard the Ligeti Chamber Concerto with Boulez and Ensemble Anticontemporain when I was 14 or 15. At that age, it was like all new music is crap is what was my attitude. Then I heard this piece and thought, I need to know more of. I didn't get it, and it didn't sound that different to a lot of other new music I'd heard, but somehow it sort of opened up that, that box. So I know exactly what you mean. Um, so we're getting close to the end of the interview, but I, I want to backtrack. You said you wanted to share with me. I, I shared my little disaster, and you said you had something to share with me. So before we go to our, our final bar questions, I wanted to backtrack to that. So similarly to yours, it involved, you know, a program with many different items. And this was a concert, a gala concert, where the penultimate number was going to be the finale from Carmina Burana. Out of respect for the choir conductor who'd prepared the choir, we said, okay, we'll let you conduct that before I come on stage for the last number. So I came off stage prior to the Carmina, and it was his turn to go out on stage. And they called out for him, and they couldn't find him. He wasn't turning up and, you know, the audience was out there waiting for Carmina to start. He didn't come. And so, you know, I was there. It looked like I'd have to go out there. I said, well, give me the music. I'll go out and do it. Oh, we haven't got the music. So I figured Carmina, well, it's sort of based mostly on 4, 16, 32, but like how many of them, I don't know. So I went out there. I had no music. I stood in front of the orchestra and I just... <laughs> I mean, you sort of know what Carmina sounds like, but anyone who's conducted it has a respect for the fact that it's a little trickier than it seems because there's like slight asymmetries and you do have to know these things. And repeats are all well and fine, but they come to an end sometimes and you don't want to keep beating when the ox is going. Anyway, I did a rendition of Carmina off the cuff, just watching the musicians around me, trying to get some clues about when it was going to stop. And it was a mixture between shame and 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 the biggest adrenaline rush you can imagine. <laughs> I've got to say, there's some titanic guts in standing up to do that. I that might be the first instance of sight reading from memory <laughs> that I know of. 
Stan, thanks so much for this. They were my questions. Now we have come to what we call the final bar, and that's where I get to share with you questions from the SYO musicians. Now, this first one is a doozy. I love this. Wesley, who plays the trombone, asks, why does music exist? Great question. I guess music exists because we're here and because we respond to those vibrations of the universe, you know, that uh, happen in, in the air and and because, you know, we see the world around us, but we very much hear the world around us. And uh, and I think music is sort of an extension of our ability to hear it and, and to understand those two faculties when you combine them. And the understanding is fueled by imagination. Uh, so perhaps it's, you know, the fact that we can hear four things and we see a structure in it, you know, four beats and we, we, we hear something constant. There's so many natural phenomena involved, rhythm, beat, pulse. We have a heart that beats. We have we have breath, which is, you know, it's cyclical. There's so many things. I love to get inspiration from where does music come from, also from just going out for a walk and listening to birds, especially birds in Australia. My God, they are the loudest, most musical birds on the planet. I'll tell you what, you come from Europe, you cannot get over just the cacophony of voices out there vying for attention. Why does music exist? It's one of the things that makes life really worth living. And the great thing about music is I think it's one of the things that you can enjoy before you're born. It's one of the last things you'll probably enjoy while you're still with everybody else here on the planet. And all the time in between, you can still listen to music even when your gut is full. You can listen to music when your gut is empty. It's a sensation. It's sensual. It gives you satisfaction on so many levels. It's very closely related to life, at least as we human beings know it. So I love the question, though. It's a, it's a lovely one to ponder. It's a big one, and you gave a beautiful answer. If that was asked of me, I think my jaw would drop, and I'd say, let me write a book and get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> the next question is from Alistair. Alistair plays the cello, and he asks, what was your favorite thing about working with the SYO? Well, I think it was SYO itself, without wanting to be glib. SYO is in Sydney. Sydney is an absolutely stunningly beautiful city, as I keep Every time I go there, um, there isn't a time that I step out of a train or a taxi or walk down to Circular Quay and just look out there on the harbour at the bridge and, and the opera house and think, if this isn't one of the most perfect places on the planet, what is? And the fact that an, an, an art, a house of the arts, you know, cultural centre is, is, is a part of that perfectness is, uh, you know, that's, it's quite amazing. And then I'll be honest, I, I, I'm somebody who loves the water. I'm a, I'm a sailor. So Sydney Harbour has that attraction too. And I love Sydney. But what I really enjoyed about SYO, and I didn't really know what to expect. This was the first encounter, but I was really impressed at the level. I mean, this is a really high level of musicianship and instrumental ability and a very high level of dedication. That ability meant that, you know, we, we did John Adams, uh, which is it's tricky, rhythmically tricky, and, uh, and the orchestra just ate it up like it was, you know, breakfast food. <laughs> and I thought, wow, first of all, you know, they, they relate to the idiom. And I'm, I, that was, I love that because I mentioned before I love contemporary music. But, you know, we, we, we stepped through a Danube waltz as well, and I put the waltz on there very much, not just because it's a tune everybody knows, but because a Viennese waltz is a very specific idiom that I guess – a lot of people don't grow up with it, and I did spend some time in Austria, and I think I understand the feeling behind it, even if I'm not really Viennese. But I just thought, let's have a go at trying to transport ourselves to a different 
musical style. How do you actually play a Vienna, a Vienna waltz? Because, you know, nothing is a straight line in a Viennese waltz. In fact, nothing's a straight line in Vienna. It's more a straight line where I come from. I'm Prussian, you know. They're, they're more famous for the straight lines. Anyway, so that, they adapted to that and were so eager to learn and go along for the ride. And I, I was really appreciative of that curiosity and openness and talent yeah. in the end, musical instinct. It's all there. Music that's a lot harder than it looks, isn't it? My next question is from Erica, who plays the violin, and she asks, what is the most useful piece of advice that you've ever received? <laughs> I don't know if I can touch on a superlative, but I'll give you one piece of advice that was once given to us in a rehearsal by Daniel Barenboim. And he was talking about something, and then he said, you know, every note has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, when he said it, I thought, yeah, duh, it's obvious, isn't it? But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that very often we're most preoccupied, especially in orchestras, with the beginning of notes. You know, we talk about playing it together. We think about the front side of the note a lot. Then the middle of the note, we think about too for various reasons, you know, saving bows, saving breath, you know, whether or not it's and what expressive potential it has in it is already secondary. It's more just a technical level. And the most neglected part of a note, in my experience, is the end of a note. Now, as a conductor, we get a bit of a fascination with ends of notes because we realize if you can get an orchestra to end a note together, you can be pretty sure that the next entry after the rest will be together. But if you're not, if you're having trouble getting a bar together, look back to the way they ended the chord before. And if they weren't on the same page when they ended the note, there's no way they're going to be on the same page when you have to start the next note. Stuff like that. And the more I thought about that, that a note has a beginning, a middle, and an end, I just suddenly realized how many things you can begin to think about. And that's coming from a pianist where you might, you, where you really have to say, notes only have a beginning and if you're lucky they've got an end and who thinks about the middle of a piano note right so there you go that, i think that was a great piece of advice and, and plenty of food for thought although it just seemed so obvious at the time last question is from harry i think there's a bit of love in this question harry plays the trumpet and asks when are you coming back to conduct in Sydney? <laughs> well look I, I i can only say that i am hoping it will be as soon as possible i love the week there i came away with a lot and i i, I hope that the orchestra did too and uh with any luck, we'll be seeing each other again sometime in the future. Fantastic, Stan. I'm going to thank you. And before I finish up, I want to share with the people that are listening that there's so much that we can see of you online, your fantastic interviews that you do with people like Petrenko or Rattle or Barenboim yourself uh, on Digital Concert Hall as well as your own performances. So you remain an impressive and fascinating person and a great conversationalist. So I thank you very, very much for your time for what you've done with the SYO. Thank you, Matt. It's always a huge pleasure to speak with you too. Thanks for listening to Tempo, proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to click follow. For more information about SYO, visit syo.com.au.